Hi, I'm Tinema Paco. I'm host of Just Health, a podcast where health and social justice come together. This week, we're talking about volunteerism with the indefatigable, with the wonderful Pippa Biddle. We talk about volunteerism within the context of the medical elective. We talk about race, the ethics of volunteering in the developing world. Lots of really exciting and challenging conversation that spread across this first podcast and in our second episode. I'm joined today by Pippa Biddle. Uh, Pippa, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Pippa Biddle. I am a US-based writer and the author of Ours to Explore, Privilege, Power, and the Paradox of Voluntourism, which is uh, going to be released and on shelves June 2021. Exciting. Um, I'm really looking forward to uh, having a read of it. Um, so I sort of discovered Pippa's writing and work from um, an article that she contributed to in The Guardian, all about the topic of volunteerism. How, how did you begin exploring this this topic? For me, volunteerism started out personal. Um, I took part in volunteerism as a teenager. Like many teens, uh, I spent a summer in Tanzania at an orphanage and also part of that summer in the Dominican Republic. And both those experiences were personally very fulfilling, but also extraordinarily um, conflict inducing Mm. (laughs) internally. Um, But really the only way that I can conceptualize now of why I didn't question them more is that I didn't yet have the vocabulary to do so. I didn't know what volunteerism was. I'd never heard the word. I didn't know what volunteerism was, in fact, until 2014. And I Mm -hmm. wrote about it for the first time. And I thought (laughs) I invented this portmanteau, uh, Googled and was awoken to the fact I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. (laughs) I'm sure we've all had those moments where we think we've come up with great new terms and they're like, damn, someone's stolen it. (laughs) But it was actually quite freeing because, you know, At that point, I spent a few years really conflicted over how I'd chosen and at that point was continuing to engage with other communities and cultures. And I hadn't realized that it was a bigger conversation, that other people were having the conversation. Mm -hmm. And by gaining that vocabulary, I suddenly had something to search for. I knew what to Google, I knew what to ask questions about. And it sounds a little naive and silly because I could have done that prior, but it really shows the power of access to information Mm. and why it's so important to be having these conversations because there's so many people like myself who are feeling the same way I was, but like me, don't have the vocabulary yet through which to question it. Yeah, I think that's a really important point when people talk about you know, when, when we're reflecting on our, own, on our own experiences and are like, am I the only person who feels this way? Or, you know, how does this relate to other people, these experiences? Once we have the the key words almost, we're, then we're able to really sort of, start sort of meaningfully engage on that. Like, uh, you know, certainly in the personal sense. Absolutely. And I think even as I've dug into the topic of volunteerism professionally over the last six years... Every step of the way, I've learned new terms and new topics that otherwise I, I didn't even know existed. 
even within the space of volunteerism. So for me, um, medical, for example, was a huge place of learning. Uh, when I worked in the Dominican Republic, I did work with a medically vulnerable population. Mm -hmm. I was working with HIV positive and affected uh, pediatric patients. And there were volunteers from the U.S. predominantly who were also there. Um, but they were medical students and they sort of existed in a different realm to me. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started researching the book that I learned a lot more about precisely how significant volunteerism is in the medical community and um, how much the medical community is a driving force for the growth and expansion of the industry. If you're enjoying Just Health, why don't you follow us on our socials, on Twitter, on Instagram, why don't you also follow me at Tinema Packham on Twitter as well? I rant and rave about things. That was meant to be some sort of advert. I'll stop. So, do you want to start off by saying how you would define voluntourism? Absolutely, because there's a ton of definitions. Uh, so, I define voluntourism as short term travel to a place outside of your home or culture um, that is paired with volunteering. Typically that volunteering is unskilled, but not always. Mm -hmm. Almost always that volunteering requires the volunteer to do something that goes outside of um, their skills or certifications in their home community. So when you say that medical volunteerism is a big driving force. How did you sort of come to that conclusion? For me, you know, I really came to the conclusion that medical volunteerism was a driving force for the industry when I started interviewing former volunteerists about their past experiences. And most of the people I talked to had been involved in a medical context, many of whom were going immediately after what in the US we call high school, Mm -hmm. um, in the UK's college. So they're 16, 17, 18 years old. They have absolutely no medical experience. Um, and they are learning how to draw blood on patients with whom they have no, um, community ties mm -hmm. or what Dr. Jessica ever from child family health international, which does a lot of work around this. She calls it the social contract. So by going outside of the community in which they have a social contract, they're really being allowed to um, play a role yeah. that they haven't earned. Um, and then in the U.S. especially, uh, I was finding a lot of research parallel to those conversations that showed that medical schools were offering these sort of alternative spring breaks and volunteerism trips as a way of attracting students. For them, it was a marketing tool. Mm. Gosh, I think, I think it being seen as a like a plus or an, an addition of why you should apply to that school definitely. Well, I, I, that that's not something that happens as as much in in the UK. So I find that quite sort of jarring. Um. Yeah, it is jarring, and it's also a thing that people do to try to get into a better medical school. Yeah, so you definitely. see a lot of students prior to even applying to medical school saying, okay, I'm going to go to X country that will let me practice. Um, 
often under the radar, often against the country's own um, legal boundaries of what is ethical and safe and legal and okay, Mm. um, but that they can get away with it there and then they can pad out their resume when applying to medical school. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem like medical schools care, except that they see that someone's tried and done something and yay, they've put in that time. So we'll give them a gold star. It doesn't seem like they care about the impact on the ground. And that's a little baffling because it's contrary to the Hippocratic Oath. It's contrary to what we know um, the medical system to stand for Mm. as far as every individual deserving the highest quality of care possibly available to them. Um, And we also see it in disaster relief where you see organizations like Doctors Without Borders that require a lot of the time doctors to have had previous emergency or disaster response experience yeah which means they have to have traveled with less uh accredited or respected programs prior to traveling with the ones that actually are doing a good job that's really fascinating that's that that particular perspective that even the you know the legitimate organizations who try and have strong ethics end up still encouraging people to go out and you know, work with less reputable organizations. Um, and, and often these, these organizations themselves are quite vulnerable themselves. They're quite, you know, really dependent on the income that comes from, you know, that comes from the voluntarists themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, I call them trip providers. Often I'll say organization because I'm slipping up because even in my head now, after almost a decade of looking at this, it is my assumption that, People who do volunteerism trips, who organize them, they're not profits, right? They're not. Yeah. The vast majority of them are for-profit companies. I mean, the group that I went with to Tanzania when I was 16, I thought I was traveling with a nonprofit. I wasn't. I was traveling with a for-profit that openly states on their website, or at least did previously, um, that... I think it was less than 1% of a volunteerism's fees were given as a donation to the nonprofits that they worked with, Um, which is one of the reasons why volunteerists are encouraged to fundraise so much. And often they're confused. I'm paying so much. Why do I have to fundraise? It's because these are for-profit trip tourism companies that are often wearing the mantle of nonprofit organizations yeah they're very much like you know dress themselves up as charity organizations like i was i was looking at you know a couple of the websites and you know the imagery they choose you know people posing with the children and and, and so on and so on it's very much to look like any other you know nonprofit would prevent them present themselves as but also i mean think about who is their customer and who are they appealing to who are looking at these websites they're people who want to see themselves as the type of people who do good things. Yeah. So how else would you market that product except with pictures and imagery of similarly minded people? I think one of the um, misconceptions that often results, unfortunately, from volunteerism imagery is that all volunteerists are white. The vast mm. majority are but not all volunteerists are white. You can be a person of color, 
even volunteering in a community that is predominantly um, visually similar to yourself, mm -hmm. and you're still a voluntourist. Yeah, yeah. You don't, race is not a uh, necessary checkbox to qualify uh, similar to gender. Mm -hmm. People tend to assume that most voluntourists are women, also not true. Um, within the US, it's actually about 50-50 men and women. Um, and so we see all these images of young white girls posing with black babies. And we have this idea of what a voluntourist is. And a lot of people will exempt themselves from that definition because they don't fit that image, but they're not actually exempt. So when we're thinking about the the negatives that come out of voluntourism, what, what are the sort of the most important things that you, you'd want to highlight to someone? Yeah, so I think that the fastest response, the quickest emotional click for someone when I'm trying to explain to them why volunteerism ba is bad um, is children and the impact that it has on children. We know for a fact that one of the most important things to a child in their development is continuous, reliable um, role models and adults in their lives and caregivers. Mm -hmm. Having a rotating door of caregivers is extraordinarily harmful and results in long-term psychological damage. It also opens doors for abuse. Um, it opens doors for a lot of problems when those children get older that unfortunately the voluntourists will never see. And many voluntourists... Uh, excuse their behavior because they say, well, but I was good. I yeah. behaved. And as soon as you contextualize them within this larger system of it's not just about you, it's about the person who came before you and the person who came after you. Um, I think that's one way to sort of get it to click with people. But I also think medical is an extraordinarily uh visual example as well and in the moment with less of a long-term um, impact timeline mm -hmm. where if someone shows up at a hospital and the individual who's going to treat them is unqualified to do so and solely has that powerful position because they are a paying voluntarist yeah that is wrong mm -hmm. that is that is flat out wrong and can result in death and bodily harm and long-term damage to someone's physical body and their psychological well-being. Um, and that should be clear. That shouldn't be something that's confusing to people. If I were to go into the doctor's office and I was told, hey, so we have doctors here, but we're actually going to have a 17-year-old who's never drawn blood do your procedure, I get up and walk out. Yeah. So why do we think it's okay to treat other people that way? And yeah, the, I mean, there's an infamous case that has been in the news relatively recently of, a, of an American volunteer who went to Uganda and was found Renee to... Renee Bach. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you talk a, a little bit more about the Renee Bach story? Yeah, the Renee Bach story is really a fascinating tale of hubris. Mm. And um, a big part of the volunteerism industry, especially in the U.S., is faith and specifically Christianity. And when you combine 
the messaging of a particular type of Christianity with um, what appears to already have been pre-existing hubris. You have people who believe that they have the right to behave in ways that are harmful to others. I believe quite firmly that Renee Bach believes what she did was good and carries that belief to that day and believes that the overall sum of the total of her actions were positive and had a positive. I completely disagree with that arithmetic. Yeah. I think that she is entirely off base, did extreme harm and damage, inspired so many others to do the same type of harm that's still continuing. She's still inspiring people. Um, It's believed that her choices led to the death of children. Now, Mm. There are children who pass away in any medical situation. So pinning specific outcomes on her decisions is difficult, but she did not act in the best interest of the individuals who were under her care and who never should have been under her care and were only under her care because she decided that she had the right to provide a service that she was unqualified to provide. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, setting aside the complexity of any medical harm that befalls anyone, the, 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 you know, the first issue is that she shouldn't have been there in the first place at all. So wherever she is, is within the, you know, the, the continuum of, of consequences which led to, led to death or serious harm, she shouldn't be, she shouldn't have been part of any decision making process. If you are enjoying Just Tell, subscribe at all those good places you get good podcasts. Absolutely. I think that's actually one of the hardest things to dismantle within voluntourism as a structural system is that there are so many stories that are held up within the pro-voluntourism community of, yes, I made a few bad decisions, but look at this really positive eventual outcome. And that is valorized Mm. as perseverance rather than being demonized as creating harm that then you sort of put a layer of frosting over and said, look, this was great. Um, And it really is to the benefit of the voluntourists themselves, which is where this entire narrative leads regardless. Look how much I've grown. Look how much uh, I understand the world better because of the experiences I had. It's a very me, me, me. And very early on in my uh, exploration of this subject, my father and I were actually interviewed side by side for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, we were interviewed separately. We didn't know each other's answers and they ran them side by side. And at that time, my dad was still arguing, you know, I get where Pippa's coming from, but I believe that the experience was good for her and I would do it again. Now, five years later, he doesn't have that argument anymore. Mm. And it's not just because I (laughs) argued it out of him. It's because it took him time to process that my growth. I mean, this book wouldn't exist if I hadn't gone to an orphanage in Tanzania where I learned that girls were being denied medical care, were malnourished. And I took advantage of that situation. Mm. If I had not done that, I would not have the platform I have today. That is sick and twisted. Mm. And a lot of people point to that as, oh, 
that's that's a good thing. Look what you got in the end. So it must all have been worth it. No, it's not. Now, one reaction could that be that I should shut up because probably I should stop taking advantage of a platform that I shouldn't have ever had in the first place. Um, that's a fair argument. And I don't yeah. really have a good retort for it, except that for me, one, I'm really bad at shutting up. And two, I've sort of decided that what I can do best is to learn as much as I can and spread it as far as I can. So that more people do not hold me and people like me up as examples of why it's worth it. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a very difficult tension because so much of volunteerism happens to with young people, right. Who, you know, you know, and I, and I, you know, and this is the thing when I speak with, with other people. So my housemate, um, he took part in a volunteerism scheme like this in order to, you know, partially to bump up his medical school application, which is, which is not uncommon. And I can't blame him. He was a 16 year old entering an incredibly competitive specialty. His parents were like, oh, this is a reasonable charity and he'll learn loads going away uh, to Tanzania. And, and, and I think that's sort of how we get there. Everyone can justify it by pretty reasonable situations, um, but by pretty, you know, reasonable explanations. But often we, people then don't look at, ah, oh, the, the, the whole system is the problem. You know, the apparatus and the, the negatives that come out from, you know, you know, creating orphanages, which don't need to be there, but are driven by the fact that Western tourists come come there, which means that children end up in institutions rather than with their families, you know, and, and things like this. Yeah, we're very good at implicating others. Um, we're very bad at implicating ourselves. So, I mean, I've given many talks at universities where a student will come up to me after and say, you know, I agreed with everything you said. You're right on point. But this is why my trip wasn't that bad. Yeah. That we really don't want to implicate ourselves in the problem because all of a sudden it makes us responsible for our actions. And that's a very vulnerable way to live. Being responsible, is, yeah. especially for things you've done in the past that you can't take back. Um, I think especially on top of that, we currently live in a culture and within a cultural climate where admitting mistakes can come with some really uh, harsh consequences. Even when people are trying to do it in a way that is thoughtful and genuine and with a um, perspective towards behaving that better in the future. And that's part of call-out culture. That's Instagram just ripping people apart for posting yeah. for pictures they posted eight years ago. Now, I think there are very real productive outcomes to calling people out, but there also are very real non-productive outcomes to calling people out. And unfortunately, one of those outcomes is people choosing to just remove themselves from the conversation. Yeah. And one of the things I hope to do with this book is to welcome more people into the conversation and say, look, you might not be ready to talk about what you've done publicly. You might not be ready to talk about it with your friends or family, but at least learn more. Understand the context behind the decisions you've made, the potential 
results of the decisions you've made so that you can make better decisions in the future. Yeah. And I think this is the thing, right? You know, it's enjoyable. Oh, we can call someone out. We can feel self-righteous. Aren't we, aren't we good? You know, but actually holding yourself responsible for things that you did, which weren't good, you know, that, that doesn't mean that, you know, you're the worst person in the world or, or anything like that. But it means that we've got to understand our own, you know, we've got to be responsible for our own stuff. You know, I was going to say something worse, more severe than stuff then. Um, <laughs> like, you know, and this is the thing. Um, so in my experience, so I'm, I'm Zimbabwean by birth and I lived there till I was about four years old. Um, and I went back to, to Zimbabwe to do a, uh, an, a, a sort of elective before I started uh, university. And it was mostly just me sitting in rooms um, whilst other people did stuff. I didn't really do anything. Um, I actually find it shocking that any, like, 16 or 17-year-old would go draw blood from anyone because I was absolutely terrified of doing anything like that. Um, but there was one situation where we were we were working with a counsellor um, and she was counselling, you know, extremely vulnerable women who had children who had disabilities. And obviously having you know, a child with disabilities in a country where there's lots of social stigma, you know, not a good primary care and maternity care services. Like, this is the only child, parent, disability services in the country um, that we had, and people come from thousands of miles. The counsellor had to pop out to receive a call, and I was there with this distressed woman, me, the first-year university, year social worker student, and she was like, oh, can you talk to this lady? And we were just left in that situation. Um, you know, I really reflect on that now. And I'm just thinking, you know, what the hell was going on? <laughs> you know, what? Yeah, I shouldn't have been good there. Good question. Um, and just, I think we just it's ended up having, having, you know, a, a conversation. Because um, I was like, I am not qualified <laughs> to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's a really key moment of you realizing you were not qualified. That's a moment that I did not have. Um when I was that same age, I did not reflect on the right I had to be in a space mm. and whether it was just responsible for me to be filling that space. I think that part of that is white privilege. Um, part of that is just privilege of any color. I come from a affluent background i was volunteering with my all-girls boarding school which mm. in the uk isn't that much of a marker but in the u.s uh we're a very very sort of small crowd yeah. of people who who go to boarding school and i was entering into spaces with the assumption i had the right to be there which is an extraordinarily dangerous way to live your life but no one had told me that and one of the scariest things for me to accept and begin to reckon with is that I don't have a right to be anywhere. And that's scary. That's, that's yeah. hard when you, when you choose to, you're not giving anything up because the reality is people still see me the way I am. I still am the recipient of huge amounts of privilege, but when you choose to, remind yourself constantly that you have not earned something that you are experiencing. It's very scary. Yeah. And that's that exact process that you had of thinking, what am I doing here is what all of us need to be asking ourselves much more frequently. 
I and and I guess you know, and this is a thing part of the fact that we 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 come from you know very sort of different backgrounds. Like I was just very much you know thinking very much of how how I was in that situation. You know, I had found myself there because you know my father was a social worker whilst he was in Zimbabwe. So the, so these are the connections he knew. Like he knew a nurse um, who worked there, and that's sort of how I got my in. You know, it wasn't a wasn't organized through some sort of program or scheme or or anything like that but then again i i still saw how that actually that that didn't actually make things you know didn't stop me being a voluntarist because still i was in a a place where you know had i pushed a bit more argued a bit more i could have well may well have been doing stuff which i shouldn't have been doing you know which could have led to harming people I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to Just Hell. I think this has been a really fascinating and reflective discussion. As I was talking to Pippa, it really dawned on me how little we have considered uh, the ethical impacts as medics when we go out on electives, when we engage in healthcare and low-resource settings. And actually, the infrastructure, the multi-billion pound voluntourism industry, the way charities and NGOs work, racial inequities, big, big problems in global health. I think we all need to consider how we go about as individuals, but more importantly, how we interact in the organisations that we take part in and represent, and how we can use our positions to work with others to advocate for a better way of us as medics engaging with our colleagues in the Global South. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, we have part two of our volunteerism episode where I speak more to Pippa Biddle. We also have a fun chat with a UK medic who found themselves being a volunteerist and they didn't really know it at